We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55, I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our Prime Spark. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close, with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling, productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Lily Iona McKenzie, a woman whose work I greatly admire. In her youth, Lily Iona McKenzie, a poet and novelist who also writes nonfiction, frolicked on a Canadian farm in an area almost too small to be on the map. She didn't practice writing then, but she did learn to pay attention to her surroundings. The clouds in the sky offered images that stirred her imagination and stimulated her dreaming self. Calves, cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, turkeys, dogs, cats, and horses were her early teachers and her main playmates. Those years instilled in her the need to honor those in her care and the realization that being successful involves hard work. As a writer, it includes her dedication to the writing craft and her belief that commitment and perseverance form the machinery that writers depend upon. Welcome, Lily. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Hi, Sarah. I'm happy to be here also. Thanks for that introduction. Oh, you're welcome. It's um, I'm, I'm curious about so many things in it. So, But in getting started, let me just ask you, you experience getting older. And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why is it you think you don't? Well... I, I I don't experience it in the sense that I still have the energy and curiosity and 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 you know desire to experience new things that I've always had, and so I you know I have to remind myself, okay, Lily, you're eighty two, <laughs> and things are changing, uh, and and I guess the thing about being eighty two is that there really is. You know, from even when I was seventy, I could put off the thought, "Well, you know, you're going to die," and, and uh, but now it's closer to that time, and and you don't know, of course, 
when that's going to happen. So that's a reminder, unfortunately, uh, for those of us who are in our 80s, that there is a limited time for us. So I think I feel even more pressure to do as much as I can in the time I have remaining. And then to forget that I may be too for a while. Good idea. Both ways, good idea. Yeah, isn't that interesting that um, the older we get, the more we're aware of not knowing when could be the end. And that's actually true our whole lives. That's right. But we don't really take that in until we get closer to the end of our lives, which uh, is probably, I don't know, maybe a good thing, maybe not a good thing, but it is the way I think most of us operate. Yes, I think so. So I'm, go ahead, I'm sorry. And rightly so. And rightly so, yes, I think that's right. So I'm, I'm fascinated with the number of things you've written, and I believe you uh, started your first poetry collection in 2011. I think it came out then. Is that right? That's when it came out. Uh, but it doesn't mean that's when I first wrote it. So, I, I mean, my publishing career started late. I was in 2011. I was 71. And uh and my first novel came out when I was 75. I was called a debut author it's, you know, at 75. I always laugh at that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so the publishing part came late. How did that happen? What was, I mean, you, you must have been writing for a long time. And then at some point, did you decide, okay, now it's time to publish or what happened? Well, it actually, you know, I've been, I uh, kept voluminous journals from the time I was, oh, I'd say about 27 until now. And I've been reviewing those early journals. At the moment, I'm in 1981. And in 1981, I was 41. And I was struggling then still to believe that I was a writer. It was uh, a long journey to be able to say, oh, I really am a writer, (laughs) and I have some things to offer the world. Uh, So it wasn't really until my 40s that I uh, made much of an effort to publish anything. So I published tons of uh, short pieces in journals and magazines and so on, both in Canada, where I grew up, and in the U.S., but... uh, Publishing books, I didn't even think that I would ever write a book, uh, much less publish one at that age. So, uh, so, so, uh, I had started working. I decided that since poetry didn't make any money, uh, if I published a book of poetry, that I'd better start thinking about writing a novel if I wanted to make any money as a writer. And even that's kind of a joke because writers don't make much money. Uh, so, uh, so at some point, I, I said, you know, I began uh, writing a novel that evolved eventually into uh, what became my first published novel, Fling. Uh, but uh, in terms of why didn't I promote 
publishing before then? Well, I did. Uh, I you know went through the usual, the traditional route of looking for the New York agent who's going to you know connect me with the big publishing houses and make me lots of money. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, and uh, and I had some success. I had uh, uh, it wasn't a New York agent, but a woman who lived in LA, and and she tried to uh, publish my uh, another novel of mine that <clears throat> came out uh, not long after a fling did Free Fall, a Divine Comedy. Uh, but she wasn't able. She didn't have the connections. It wasn't able to sell it. Uh, oddly, my big New York agent ended up being uh, someone that I had submitted uh, another novel, Purple Palagrosa, to. And he loved it, and he thought this was going to be there was going to be a bidding war about it. Unfortunately, it was 2009, and if you recall, there was a real uh, financial downturn then. And so he to to get a big house to show interest in you know a first time novelist uh, was just you know tried for uh, a year and and had to finally say you know it wasn't going to happen. We got some nice responses to it, but no one was willing to take the risk. So that caused me to go back and uh, and with that particular novel to review it to uh, do a lot of revision and then uh, uh, after you know having tried the traditional road and not being successful and I queried so hundreds of agents uh, during that time and uh, uh, I decided I'm going to just go directly to small publishers and that's and so I was successful soon after and Penel uh, Publishing uh, picked up flame and then later they offered me a contract on two other books that they published in mine, Free Fall and The Ripening, the last novel uh, that came out uh, about a year or so ago. Let's go backwards to Fling. What is Fling about? Well, Fling is <laughs> it's about uh, a mother and daughter uh, the mother is uh, 90, and the daughter is 57 in the, in the narrative. And uh, the mother was from Scotland originally, and her own mother had uh, gone to Mexico City uh, back in the 1920s and never returned. And so uh, she has gotten... An, a letter from the dead letter office in Mexico City saying that her mother's ashes have turned up and uh, they can't send them through the mail because of health problems. <laughs> and so and so she'll have to come to Mexico to get them. So that sets off uh, the daughter, Feather, is a visual artist and uh, she lives in California. The mother lives in Canada and Calgary, and uh, and the mother talks the daughter into taking her to Mexico City to uh, to get these ashes, and so it's 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 
it's a very zany, uh, funny book on so many levels. But it's also serious because death definitely enters into it. And, uh, and also um, the relationship between a mother and daughter, they you know, have some exchanges that are really uh, important in terms of their relationship and, and, and uh, some of the problems that the daughter especially has had with the mother. So it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a book about mothers and daughters, but it's also about uh, uh, the imagination and how essential it is. I think, I think that comes through in all of my books. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they have a flame. They, they both have flames. <laughs> well, that's, it sounds fun. It, it sounds like, um, yes. um, you know, you said earlier that um, way before, I think I understood this right, that really before you published very much of anything, maybe a little bit, but you had you had to convince yourself that you were a writer, or you had to realize you were a writer. And and how do we convince ourselves we're a writer if we haven't published something that was at least modestly successful? Well, I don't think you have to publish you're a writer and uh, to acknowledge that you're a writer, and in fact. Uh, one of the things that never I never worried about publishing was poetry because it's so essential. It's it, I had a dream once that poetry was the foundation really of all my writing, and uh, and so it's it's so essential to me and so satisfying to me to write poetry or to write anything for that matter that I don't really need to publish. The publishing is of course to get that external recognition and. And maybe to make some money, uh, uh, but uh, I don't think that you have to publish to be to think of yourself as a writer at all. Can you describe or explain what you mean by that poetry is foundation to you and to your writing? Well, it comes from a, a very deep place in me. I, I realize that whenever. I um, you know read the poems that I've written that it's showing me a part of my psyche that I otherwise wouldn't have been aware of, and it's much more closely related to you know what I guess we would call soul, uh, spirit, something, and so uh, I think for me at least in in when I'm writing prose as, as well, I think that that level comes through because of the poetry uh, that I've written uh, and in how I approach, you know, imagery and, and, and so on in my narratives. So you can, is this, is this, is this right? That you can go to the depths that you go to in your novels because of the, the depth you have with poetry. Yes. But I, 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 you know, I wouldn't say, well, this has to be true for everyone. It's just my truth. Right, uh, right, you know, yeah. Right. So you yeah. don't have to be a poet to write novels at all. Right. Or anything else. <laughs> but it just happens to be what's true for me. For you. 
Yeah. And it, it seemed to me from that um, wonderful um, story of your growing up that that that's a very poetic way to grow up. Yes. Yeah, I was so, uh, I had the good fortune of spending those early years on a farm. And, uh, you know, the reality of farm life is, is it's hard work. And the reality of writing, if you're trying to be successful at it, it's hard work too, and requires tremendous commitment. And the same thing, you know, on a farm. Uh, you have to be as committed to the animals. You have to be committed to the animals because you're dependent on them. And they're dependent on you. So, you know, that was I that's so much a part of my being, uh, because of those early years of, you know, of feeding the chickens and gathering the eggs and milking the cows and all of the many, many, many chores that uh, you have when you're living on a farm. I think sometimes many of us don't really understand how how hard what hard work being a successful in whatever way you want to say that successful writer is i mean there are there it's always it's not so amazing anymore to me but it was when i first heard about this that really successful writers are are at their desk at 4 or 5 in the morning every day not me <laughs> not me. I'm not. I'm not a no. But and I'm not an early morning riser at all. But, no, but that, it's it's a it's a discipline that, that you sit down and you write. It is. Do you feel like it? No. You still sit down and you write. Yeah. You write something. You do, and I think uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because when I was. Uh, 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 50, I married my uh, recent, my current husband, and he had gone through a divorce, and he was, he had two children, one was five and one was ten, so at 50, I had taken on the additional responsibility. My own son had already grown to adulthood, but then I had that responsibility, so I was teaching part-time as well, and so, you know, what happens to my writing life? Well, I couldn't give that up. So I made the commitment to myself that I would write for a, a minimum of an hour every day. And, uh, and I managed to do that. And by doing that, I mean, if you write an hour a day, you can produce a, a draft of a novel in a year. Uh, and you can write lots of short things too during that time. So it doesn't have to be, you know, hours every day. You can just write for an hour a day and you can do a tremendous amount. I think it, 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 I don't know this, but it sounds, it seems to me when I hear writers talk about it, that it's actually more about consistency than yeah. length of time sitting at the desk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, um, your latest poetry collection, California Dreaming. Yes. Just came out. It did. Yeah. How is how tell me about California dreaming? I live in California, so I'm interested in California dreaming. Yeah, I live in California too. And uh you know, I I I I'm not sure how I came to that. Well, I do. I have it's the title of a poem. Uh so and and the poem focuses on some uh unusual images 
uh, that uh, you know come out of living in California, and uh, and I think California has a kind of even though it's uh, you know it, it produces so much in terms of fruit and vegetables and, and other things, and uh, it certainly has a, a really good economy. Uh, but there's also, I think, that dreamer level, and and we have we see some of that coming out of the Hollywood part of California, you know, movies and how they try to reproduce, I think, uh, our unconscious life in certain ways. And so I feel as if, uh, you know, in in the collection, I think the, the poems are are grasping some aspect of California and and the dreaming quality of it, which doesn't mean that it's not substantial, but that it just adds another dimension to what it's like to live in this state, this wonderful state. That's interesting. I don't think of dreams as being insubstantial, so. <laughs> yeah, well, some people do, you know, yeah. fantasies, this kind of thing, you know, what, you're just dreaming, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the the I think the latest thing that you've written that will come out soon is dreaming myself into old age. One woman's search for meaning. So tell me about that. That is fascinating to me. Uh, well, you know, I uh, one of the things that I have uh, uh, paid a lot of attention to since I was a young woman are my nightly dreams, and so every morning. I you know, try and capture them in my journals. And uh, this has just been a discipline that I've followed you know, since I was 27. And, uh, and I've also been in Lumian analysis too, as a younger woman. And then when I turned 72, I uh, thought, well, I think it's time to go into analysis again. Uh, I had my fears about aging, about dying. Uh, it seemed like a good time to you know, address those things. And so I started working with a wonderful human analyst. And uh, and so the book came out of really uh, those years of working with him. And and so in in the uh, narrative, I I include some of the dreams that I brought to him during that time and uh, and include you know the reflections on them what they how they spoke to me and uh, and then I also um, the book also I call it a hybrid memoir because it isn't just you know my personal uh, memories and experiences but it also includes uh, some poetry. It includes um, uh, how the arts have, are part of that dreaming uh, life for me and how, how essential they are, all of the arts, uh, to my uh, well-being, to my uh, understanding of myself in the world. So, uh, and, you know, so I, I suppose it boils down to uh, a real push for our imaginative life and how essential it is for us not to lose that connection as we age that you know our bodies may fail us but our imaginations never never go uh, as long as we exercise 
that part of ourselves. And uh, and we're saying, you know, you don't, they don't have the actual dreams that we're focusing on, uh, you know, to uh, uh, have some sort of spiritual life or interest in things, you know, beyond us. But uh, uh, as long as we're using our imagination and um, giving ourselves access to um, parts of the world that uh, you know trigger the imagination, then I think we still have a vital life. Love that. Um, we all know how we may do it or we may not do it, but we all know how to exercise our bodies. Yeah. How do we exercise our imaginations in order to keep them as supple? as we're trying to keep our bodies? Yeah, great question, Sarah. And I think I've sort of answered it a bit. I think uh, for me, uh, the dreaming part and recording my dreams and paying attention to them and thinking about them certainly is one way, but uh, it doesn't have to be the arts necessarily either. Uh, I don't think to exercise the imagination. I think it's... Uh, it's certainly reading uh, is essential uh, and reading in you know really broad areas you don't and, and in fact I think if you're accustomed to reading just in one category it's really useful especially as you get older to push yourself into reading things and that you may never have thought would interest you and then they stimulate you and your imagination in wonderful ways so um, uh, you know, and I think any hands-on activity, too. Uh, you know, I uh, learned how to crochet and knit when I was a young woman, and uh, I loved doing that. And it, and it has a real, uh, I think, transporting quality. Things that we do with our hands, cooking, certainly, uh, too. And so I think there are so many, there are multiple ways to access and to keep the imagination alive and lively. Uh, just look around you and nature, oh my God, uh, you know, how if you can spend some time uh, uh, frequently in nature, I think that's a tremendous stimulant too. We just spent a few days up in Arcata, California, place I'd never visited. And the place that we stayed in had this living room view out over the Sequoia forest up there. And it was just astonishing. I mean, we couldn't take our eyes off of those trees whenever we were in that house. It was so glorious. So there's so much uh, in life to keep us lively and to keep us alive. And I think it's important to be open uh, to as much as, of that as possible. Uh, and certainly, you know, being part of different groups, uh, which there's so many things that we can access to different kinds of groups. Uh, that we can affiliate ourselves with, you know, meeting new people, uh, learning about their histories. I teach memoir at the Fromm Institute at the University of San Francisco. And I'm just, I mean, what a privilege that is for me and for them to have access to these drafts that they write of different parts of their lives. They're just fascinated with hearing uh, each other's stories. And I'm you know, blown away by them. 
So, so much, there's, there just isn't enough time, unfortunately, to do all the things that we could be doing to keep ourselves uh, in life. No, that is absolutely true. I, um, everywhere I look, there's something I want to be doing. And yeah. yet there is just, there's not time to do that. You know, one, as you were speaking about the doors, one of the things I was thinking about several years ago, a friend of mine told me about the, the Cloud Appreciation Society. Oh, and I joined it. Oh. And, and every day they send you a picture of somebody who's seen interesting clouds. Well, I go to Kauai every year. And when I'm there, I look, I watch every night the sunset. I watch the clouds. I watch, and I realized I don't do that when I'm home. The oh. sun sets every night. Yes. You know, you can't always see it, but I don't have to wait till I'm in Hawaii to look at That's the sunset. Crazy. And so being part of this Cloud Appreciation Society has made me very aware of clouds. And um, I have, I've always had a really vivid imagination. So I always see things in these clouds. Yes, yes. And um, I think that's a wonderful way to play with your imagination. Absolutely. And they're there, you know, they're almost every day. There's some clouds up there to look at. Yes, they are. Yes, that's great. Yeah. So Lily, what's next? What is next for you? Well, I've been, uh, I actually have, uh, written another book that's seeking a publisher. It's called The Sinners Club, and it's uh, a, it's a novella in in linked short stories. And I actually did when I was a young woman. I worked at a couple of different churches in Marin County, and so it's based on some of my experiences, my observations from working in those in those churches. It's a funny book uh, on some level, too. Uh, but also serious. Um, so that's how I'm looking for a publisher right now. And I'm uh, so and I'm also working on uh, on another memoir. Uh, and this one will be more directly memoir. And I'm uh, will be calling on some of the things that I'm discovering in these early journals that I kept. Uh, and so I'm in the process of you know, uh, developing de developing that. Uh, and I teach, uh, you know, at uh, still at the Farm Institute, I teach memoir, and I love it. So uh, lots to do, not enough time. Well, I think that sounds fun. I'm going to watch for that new book because it sounds like it's um, probably parts of it are serious, but very funny. That I am so that would be fun. Oh, Lily, this was really interesting and fun. So I could imagine people might want to get in touch with you. If they do, how can they do that? Well, I uh, it's probably easier to visit my blog, uh, and it's very easy if you know how to spell my name. It's just lilyionamckenzie.com, and there I am. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This has been really fun. Um, I so appreciate you, and I love listening to you talk about your imagination and how you savor it and how you grow it and keep it watered. And, <laughs> and we see your imagination as a garden. And so oh, <laughs> well, 
And Sarah, thank you for what you're doing to keep older women in view. Yes. So that's our time today. Please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much again to my guest, Lily Iona McKenzie. And don't forget, you can find her at lilyionamackenzie.com. I'm going to spell that. L-I-L-Y-I-O-N-A-M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E.com. So thank you for being with us. Spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, primesparkwomen.com, and get my free spark guide, Seven Questions to Ignite Your Spark, to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.